Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing on our day. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to be in your house. We're thankful that you have given us uh, life and breath this morning and that we can use our bodies and our minds and our souls to worship you. We thank you for your Lord's Day. We ask that you would bless us richly. We are hungry. We are um, weighed down. We are distracted, and so we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would direct our minds and our hearts to things above, and that you would, again, as you have always been, be gracious to us. Father, we pray that you would uh, guide this lesson and this Sunday school class. We pray for the children's classes that are going on right now, that you would give the teachers a love and wisdom as they teach, and that you would be uh, building us up, and that the next 45 minutes would be useful for our sanctification. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we're going to talk about hate, hate, Christian rigor. You need to be more rigorous in your hatred. We are lacking in um, proper hate. So 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11 is the verses that we are using as our uh, launching point, right? You remember these, that um, starting at verse 5, he says, applying all diligence In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. We are called to be diligent, to be rigorous in the Christian life. And remember, I keep saying this and keep preaching on this because uh, it has to do with our text, that this, this is about our sanctification. Uh, this is not about our justification. Our justification is by faith alone, not by our works. We don't uh, live a, a Christian life in order for God to justify us. We are justified solely by faith. Hard for us to accept that, wanting to do our little works and get credit for them, 
but we are solely justified by faith. And then after our justification, we prove our justification by giving ourselves over to good works, by a rigorous Christian life, by the pursuit of holiness, by, um, as the Apostle Peter says here, applying all diligence to our faith. Okay, so this is about our pursuit of sanctification, our obedience to the Lord arising from a heart that has been made new by God and who that has been filled with the love that God pours out by His Spirit. Now, as I said, when we go into the specifics, we're going to hit various uh, specific topics, um, areas where we need to be more rigorous. Um, I'm approaching this in, in this way, um, having a main verse... And considering that verse, uh, if we treat that particular verse as absolutely true, as is all of Scripture, would we be willing to obey it? Okay. Are we pursuing obedience to that command of God? And so today's main verse is Romans 12, 9a. First half of Romans 12, 9. Abhor what is evil. Abhor. Uh, hate what is evil. <clears throat> and so that's why I started provocatively and say we need to increase the amount of hate in our lives because we don't well, we need to repent of the sort of hate that's sinful, right? Maybe there's hate in our hearts towards somebody or something that we need to repent of. And maybe there's a lack of hate towards sin, a lack of abhorrence of sin. I, I certainly know that's true of my own heart. And I can pretty much guarantee, because Scripture exhorts us to it, it's lacking in your hearts too. So, hating sin. The topic today is hating sin. So, the first thing we have to establish is, is it right to hate sin? And what is our basis of hating sin? Well, that's easy. God hates sin. Right? God hates sin. Now, that's a fearful thing, right? It's a fearful thing to know that God hates sin. Because we are born in sin, and we sin. Right? We're born with pollution and corruption that we inherit from Adam, and that is sin. And then we add on top of that all of our own individual sins, all of which God hates deeply to the core of His being. One of the expressions of His perfection Perfections is wrath, is hatred, and the sole focus of that wrath is sin and sinners. Okay? Some verses. Deuteronomy 16.22, You shall not set up for yourself a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. God hates idolatry. 
God hates it when you set up idols and worship them and false gods rather than him. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Now, we could, we could work through that first. What does it mean? What is God's soul? Why is it using that word soul? You know, there's something at the core of his being and part of his, his very being that abhors evil, that hates evil. Proverbs 6, 16-19, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Seven things listed there that God abhors, He hates. When He sees those things, His response is anger. Isaiah 1.14 I, this is the this is the prophet speaking to Israel the words of God. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Those commanded feasts and festivals, they had so perverted that God now hates them because they've become the worship of idols. They become not about Yahweh, Almighty God, but they've become an avenue for sin for the people of God. Jeremiah 44.4, Yet I sent you all my servants, the prophets, again and again, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing which I hate. Jeremiah announcing that, that all the prophets have come to give this message, You're doing the things I hate. That's like a summary of the prophets. Stop doing the things I hate. Stop doing evil. Seek to do good. Zechariah 8.17 Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against another, and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Malachi 2.16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce. Revelation 2.6, yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Right, those wicked deeds of the Nicolaitans, they hate. And then we, so that's the character of God. The character of God, I mean, this is like, this is Christianity 101, right? God hates sin. I mean, what other things would we go to in Scripture to prove that? Well, he flooded the earth because he hated 
that his, his world had been corrupted by sin and was filled with violence. And so what did he do? He wiped out everyone and showed grace to one family. He showed favor. His gracious choice, his gracious favor to one family. Right? So does God hate sin? Yeah, he flooded the world because of it. It's serious. How else do we know that God hates sin? Well, his son died because of sin. And the wrath of God came pouring out upon the Son of God and he, he did not spare even his own son because he hated sin so much. Right? And, it's, and, and that is part of the cross. The cross is just not he loves sinners and so he was going to rescue them. Part of it is he is punishing all sin. He is pouring out his wrath. And that's why the cross is called a propitiation. It is a satisfaction of the wrath of God. And that's his orientation toward all sin. Wrath. The very existence of hell created by God to eternally punish those who do not repent is proof of the wrath of God towards sin. The very existence of hell will eternally express God's hatred of evil. <clears throat> and we are exhorted in Scripture to hate sin. Right? I mean, just point blank exhorted. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord, we always remember... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but we don't remember this verse. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate, says the Lord. Psalm 97.10, hate evil you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So hate evil. All those who love the Lord have to have a healthy dose of hate directed towards sin. Directed toward their own sin, but directed towards sin universally as well. Broadly. Psalm 101.3, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. The only way for worthless things not to fasten their grip on us is for us to hate how those things draw us away from God. Right? If we just put them in a neutral category, or as I'm not going to go there sort of category, and there isn't a like intensity a fervent sort of, I'm against that, I hate that, because God hates that, well then we'll, it'll fasten its grip on us. Psalm 119.104, from your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. 
Psalm 139, 21 to 22, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And that one we sort of get like, okay, whoa. Is it proper for David to express that sort of imprecation against the enemies of God? Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Do we hate those who hate God? Is it proper for us to hate those who hate God? Is it proper for us to ask God to deal with his and our enemies as the king of kings? Well, of course it is. We have example after example of those kinds of prayers in the Psalms, right? And yet we with humility approach God and we say, you know, may their, may their sins be, uh, may your wrath be poured out upon Christ for their sins or poured out upon them for all eternity by your justice. I mean, we don't even think we have enemies today. We, don't, we, we think that enemies have to have like a gun in their hand, a sword, um, have to be fighting physically. But we don't consider those who are uh, teaching a, a contrary worldview or those who are promoting sin are enemies of God and enemies of His people and enemies of our souls. We just don't like to go there because the, the ethic of today is just be nice. Nice. you got to be nice. Everybody has to be nice, especially Christians, because that's the summary of all of their doctrine is be nice. <clears throat> Amos 5.15, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Hate evil, love good. Ezekiel 35.6, therefore as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you, since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. You haven't properly hated the evil of bloodshed. Therefore, God says, bloodshed will come upon you. Right? As we cozy up with sins, rather than loathing sins, we eventually are, are, are serving those sins. <clears throat> Ezekiel 18.21 Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people... Able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And so the choosing of leaders, one of the qualities of a leader of God's people for Israel was to be those who hate dishonest gain, who hate, uh, who hate megachurch ministries right? Dishonest gain. Who are not over the people because they want to profit from them and pilfer them, but those who 
who, who have integrity and hate sin and will not take the opportunity to go after filthy lucre. There's a lot of verses here. Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate, says the Lord. Proverbs 13.5, A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Proverbs 3.31, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Proverbs 23.17, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Psalm 26.5, I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. Psalm 31.6, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. Psalm 45, 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and that pleases the Lord, right? Now, when we forget the sinfulness of sin and God's own hatred for it, we forget the cost of sin for the Son of God. Right? That's, that's one of the... That's when we, we are properly thinking about the cost of redemption for the Son of God, then we are losing sight of the sinfulness of sin and God's own hatred for it. And when that happens, we become inured. Does everybody know what that word means? Inured. I-N-U-R-E-D. That's when we become accustomed to something that's unpleasant. Right? You got a gammy leg, you've lived with it for six years, and after six years you just become inured to it. I mean, you just get used to its unpleasantness. Right? And so that's the same. We become inured to sin. Right? And so if we're not properly conceiving of the sinfulness of sin and pursuing hatred of evil then we just become inured to it. We get used to having this pleasant, unpleasant thing around, and, and that leads us to not take it seriously. It leads us to not reflect about the evil of our own actions. It makes us not really think about the, what my sins are costing the people around me, right? Because, you know, sin, it's, it's no big deal. And then I think after we get inured to sin, even worse, we begin to envy the wicked. We begin to envy those who without any compunction of conscience can give themselves over to sin. And so we want to, you know, we we envy men who make pornography. It's terrible, right? We envy that. Wish we could live their life. We envy those who embezzle money, right, and get away with it. We envy those who, uh, I mean, on and on and on and on we could give examples. And so I, I think that when we forget the sinfulness of sin, when we forget the cost, when we forget to pursue just a disgust for sin, 
It eventually leads to the envy of sinners. And Proverbs 23, 17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. And the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Right? So if you're not hating evil, likely somewhere in your heart, in some area, you're envying sinners. You're envying those who have no conscience, who, who do not fear God, and can just go into their sin, smoke dope, with, without any compunction of conscience. You're like, man, I wish I could do that. Proverbs 24, 1-2, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. Case, cases in point. When you hear the Lord's name taken in vain, what is your response? Your Savior, the God whom you worship, the God you bow before and sing His praises, when you hear His name taken in vain, what is your response? Are you numb to it? Inured to that unpleasantness? I mean, we, I, I guarantee you on at least a dozen times this week, you heard the Lord's name taken in vain. You may not even have realized it. If you're spending any time on the internet, you're going to hear the Lord's name taken in vain. If you watch TV, you will hear the Lord's name taken in vain. I mean, you can't avoid it. People love to blaspheme the one true living God. And it's become a part of our culture. And we're numb to it. Maybe you get annoyed by it, right? It's like, ah, I can't, I don't want to hear that because I really want to be able to watch this program. I want to binge watch for the next two weeks this program, and, and I'm, so I'm just going to, it annoys me, but I'm going to ignore the fact that they're constantly sinning against God Almighty and making me weak to that sin. Or maybe you're sickened by it. But are you angered by it? Are you angered by your Lord's name being dragged through the mud like that? Maybe it's coworkers you work with. They just they're always putting out the the blast the you know they're they're using Jesus' name as a as an announcement of their frustration. And you just silently suffer it. But you're not angered by it. You're slightly annoyed. Maybe you're numb to it. Maybe you don't even notice. What is your response when you see violence and sexual perversion and promiscuity and divorce and adultery promoted in the products coming out of Hollywood that we constantly see? Right? Go see a, go see a Marvel movie. I mean, and, and what sort of promiscuity are, are they selling you? We don't even see it. We're not, we're not alert to it. We, we, we are so, we might be annoyed, but we're still going to consume it. We're still going to consume it. But, but our, sh shouldn't we be unwilling to be numb to it? And shouldn't we be angry toward it? 
And that anger actually lead us to some good action of repentance and turning away. So, I mean, we could multiply examples like that, right? We just become, we, we, we aren't angered by evil. We don't detest evil. We don't abhor evil. We just sort of, I think the best way to describe it is we've become inured. We're numb to it. We just willing to live with unpleasant things. But that is not what we're called to do by Scripture. We're actually called to actively abhor evil. You know how helpful it would be to each of us here individually if we hated our sins? You know what it would lead to in our lives? Well, less sin, yeah, repentance. That's what it would lead to. And I guarantee you, like me, there are things in your life, you, there are sins in your life you don't want to give up because you love them. You love those sins. You love what God abhors and what the Son of God died for. And which, if unrepented of, could land you in hell. But you love it. You love it. And so you cozy up to it. And you're very relieved when, we, when you hear about other people loving that sin because then that gives you a little bit of cover for your own love for that sin. And aren't we all just broken? You know. Now it wouldn't be it wouldn't be right if I didn't now make a quick line to the Puritans. Right? The Puritans, the example of the Puritans, the Puritans always talked about the sinfulness of sin. The utter abhorrence that we should have towards sin. All of these guys preached on it, all of them published their preaching on it. Ralph Venning wrote a book entitled The Sinfulness of Sin. All of the books I'm mentioning you can find on monergism.com for free. Download a PDF, whatever, um, Kindle, uh, and read them. Because the, the, the Puritans weren't called doctors of the soul for no reason. They, they knew how to diagnose and to prescribe medicine. So go look at that um, sinfulness of sin. Uh, In it, he teaches one very important thing that is sort of a trope in many of these um, Puritan writings. That part of repentance is coming to hate your sin. If you don't have hatred of sin, somewhere in the process of repenting of a sin, you will not repent of that sin. There, you have to actually come to loathe and detest it and, and begin to see that sin as God sees that sin, as detestable, as despicable, as against Him and against Him alone. Thomas Watson says the same thing in his Doctrine of Repentance, which is a book all of you should read if you haven't. Um, Thomas Watson in the Doctrine of Repentance has six ingredients in repentance. The first is sight of sin. You've got to see it. The second is sorrow for sin. The third is confession of sin. The fourth is shame for sin. 
The fifth is hatred of sin. And the sixth is then turning from sin. But that penultimate one, the one that if you don't get to that point, you won't turn, is that hatred for sin. You really have to detest what it does to your own heart, your own mind, and to all those around you. And so here's what, here's what Watson says, a couple quotes from the chapter on hatred of sin. He says, there is a hatred or loathing of abominations. You shall loathe yourselves for your sins, Ezekiel 36, 31. A true penitent is a sin loather. If a man loathes what makes him sick to his stomach, think about the last time that you had the stomach flu and the thing you ate right before you got the stomach flu. Do you really want to eat that in the next couple of weeks? No. The thought of it makes you want to hurl. Okay? That's what he's saying. A true penitent is a sin loather. If a man loathes what makes him sick to his stomach, then he will much more loathe what makes his conscience sick. It is, a, it is more to loathe sin than to leave it. One may leave sin out of fear, as when the plate and jewels are thrown overboard in a storm. But the nauseating and loathing of sin argues for hating it. Christ is never loved till sin is loathed. Heaven is never longed for till sin is loathed. When a soul sees an issue of blood flowing, he cries out, Lord, when will I be freed from this body of death? When will I put off these filthy garments of sin and have the fair crown of glory set upon my head? Let all my self-love be turned into self-loathing. We are never more precious in God's eyes than when we are lepers in our own. I love the Puritans, you know? They just pick you right up and make you feel good. We are never more precious in God's eyes than, we, than when we are lepers in our own. No modern evangelical would ever say that statement. Not a chance. Because evangelicals don't hate sin. They don't care about sin. Jesus is your therapist, not your savior. Here's something else that Watson says. Those who love sin instead of hating it, are far from repentance. To the godly, sin is a thorn in the eye. To the wicked, it is a crown on the head. When you do evil, then you rejoice. Jeremiah eleven fifteen. Loving sin is worse than committing it. A good man may run into a sinful action unaware, but to love sin is desperate. Now, did you hear that? Loving sin is worse than committing it. And we're like, wait. And then he says, a good man may run into sinful action unaware. You can stumble into sin. But to love sin, to like head toward it, to like long for it, is desperate. What is it that makes a swine but loving to tumble in the mire? What is it that makes a devil but loving what opposes God? To love sin shows that the will is in sin. And the more of the will there is in the sin, the greater the sin. Willfulness makes it a sin that is not purged by sacrifice. 
Oh, how many there are that love the forbidden fruit. They love their oaths and adulteries. They love the sin and hate the reproof. Solomon speaks of a generation of men, quote, madness is in their heart while they live, unquote, Ecclesiastes 9.3. So for men to love sin, to hug what will be their death, to sport with damnation, that's madness in their heart. Repentance persuades us to show it by our bitter hatred of sin. There is a deadly antipathy between the scorpion and the crocodile. There should be such antipathy between the heart and sin. And there may be, and, and I guarantee all of us are split-minded, right? There are sins we love and sins we do detest. God has worked in our hearts if the Holy Spirit's in us. There are sins we detest. Maybe because we've been sinned against in that way. And so, you know, our, our, our fathers hit us. And so we detest that sort of violence. Right? And so, um, but on the other hand, examine yourself for the for those sins that you commit where there's very little activity in your conscience. A grumbling and complaining, maybe. You just, it's so easy for you to grumble and complain about this or that or this or that person or what this person said or didn't say or how they did that and didn't do that. And Oh man, how much time do we spend in that sort of thing. And then we walk away from it feeling justified. We got to vent. Psychologists tell us that we have to vent. <laughs> no, it's sin. We should hate it. Um, here are the points that um, Thomas Watson makes in that chapter on hating sin um, that I, I just read to give you a flavor for it. One, when a man's sin is set against sin. Two, true hatred of sin is universal. In other words, it goes beyond your own sins, but you have to get to the point where you detest sins universally, even outside of yourself. When you see others engaged in sin, you should detest it. True hatred against sin is against sin in all forms. True hatred is implacable. Does anybody know what that word means? Implacable. Yeah, unstoppable. True hatred is unstoppable. In other words, if you truly hate your sin, that hatred is going to consume you, and that's a good sort of hatred to consume you. It's implacable. It is powerful. Um, and then he says, where there is real hatred, we not only oppose sin in ourselves, but in others also. All right, so John Owen got to bring some John Owen in here too, right? John Owen wrote a book that many of us have read called The Mortification of Sin. And part of what he does in that is to remind us of the sinfulness of sin, part of the, the disgust of sin. He says this at some point in that work, rule one, God is not speaking peace. In other words, God is not going to ease your conscience. 
if there is no hatred of the sin or self-loathing. Men are certainly speaking peace to themselves if they do not have the greatest hatred imaginable of their sin and they do not abhor themselves for it. When men are wounded, disturbed, and bewildered by sin, and they know that there is no remedy apart from the mercy of God through the blood of Christ, they look to him. They look to the promises of the covenant in him. After doing so, they quiet their hearts. They know that it will be well with them. They know that God will be exalted and that he may be gracious to them. But if their souls are not driven to the greatest hatred of the sin that disquieted them, then this healing, this sense of peace, comes from themselves and not from God. What? That's harsh. That's harsh, John. Owen. It is strong wind that the Lord is near, but the Lord is not in the wind. When men truly look on Christ whom they have pierced, without whom there is no healing or peace, they will mourn. They will mourn for him because of this transgression of theirs, and they will detest the sin that pierced him. It has to get to the point, dear brothers and sisters, the sin that you love has to get to the point where you actually hate it. You despise it. You are sickened by it. As and um, Mikhail, you'll be interested by this next statement of John Owen. As Job realizes through um, healing, he cries, now I abhor myself. Until he did so, he had no lasting peace. He might perhaps have excused himself based on that doctrine of free grace so excellently preached by Elihu. But he would only have put a bandage on his wounds. He must teach self-abhorrence if he is to be healed. So it was with those in Psalm 78, 33-35, who suffered great trouble and confusion brought on by sin. They address God in Christ, which is evident from the titles they use. They call him their rock and redeemer, two words which everywhere point to the Lord Christ. I have no doubt that they spoke peace to themselves, but was it sound and lasting? No. It passed away like the early dew. God does not speak one word of peace to their souls. But why did they not have peace? Because in their address to God, they flattered themselves. They flattered him. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongues. But how does that happen? Their heart was not right with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. They did not detest or relinquish the sin about which they spoke peace to themselves. A man may petition for healing and peace, make it to the true physician, do it in the right way, quiet his heart in the promises of the covenant, yet when peace is spoken, if it is not accompanied by the hatred and abhorrence of that sin which wounded him and caused his distress, then there is not a peace of God's creating. It is a peace of his own purchasing. Now, elsewhere in this book, um, Owen, contrary to everything you've ever been taught, Owen says, don't speak peace to yourself too quickly. 
Don't be too easy on yourselves because that's what we do. We're like, sin, 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 sin. Oh, the promises of God. I don't have to be sanctified. I don't have to turn. I don't have to repent. I don't have to make progress. I don't have to pursue with diligence. There is no uh, Christian rigor is an abandonment of the gospel of grace. And Owen's like, don't speak peace to yourself before God speaks peace to you. That's what we do. We preempt this real peace by positing our own and telling God that he will give us his peace. And so what he's saying here is if hatred is not a part of that repentance, and if you don't hate your sins, then the peace that comes is a manufactured peace of your own and not the peace that God presents to those who hate their sins. And, and on it goes. Um, read Venning, read Watson, read Owen, read any Puritan. They're, they likely have a book on how horrible sin is. And it will be thorough, and it will be broken down into, you know, A's and B's, and then ones and twos after the A's and B's, and then subpoints beyond those subpoints, and they'll all be very convicting. And and so take one of those books up, because we we do have to pursue this. We have to pursue a hatred of sin. Um, the gospel of cheap grace has made us numb to this this effort we should have in our lives. The gospel of cheap grace that we have forgiveness without repentance. Right, and so. Let's take this up. Let's do the self-examination. Let's begin to think upon the cost of sin on the body and life of Christ, but then also just the, the hatred that God has for it. And part of our imitating God is hating sin, hating our sins. I mean, truly, I don't think any of us have ever repented of a sin that we didn't come to hate. I mean, examine yourselves. It wasn't until the point you got to hating the sin that you actually turned away from it. I, I guarantee it. I guarantee that's how it's worked. And yet there are sins we won't hate. And they're destroying us. They're destroying those around us. And there are huge consequences. Not the least of which is it, it makes... God angry because his love is jealous and he doesn't split his affections with idols or your sins. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would work this hatred in our hearts towards sin by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.